Rocky Peak. It's great to be with you to, uh, today and uh, just spend some time together uh, in the Word. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. I know some of you think like I might look like my younger brother right now, but more on that uh, to, in just a second. Uh, hey, uh, we're going to go to our time of teaching. Uh, if you haven't already uh, uh, downloaded your message note sheet, uh, your favorite uh, option, that encourage you to do that. But before we jump in, uh, just a couple quick uh, announcements that I want to share as well. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you so much for um, coming out and being a part of August Unleashed. We've had an amazing month together, 12 different gatherings here on our campus, uh, three encounters four weeks ago, and then the last three weeks, nine uh, kind of prayer and worship nights as we've been pursuing the Lord with fasting and prayer and worship. But it's been so great to see so many of you out there, and I want to thank you for participating in that. Uh, and I also want to thank uh, those of you who, for whatever reason, uh, were not able to be here, uh, especially if maybe there was concerns in, of your own health or someone in your family or someone close, you're not able to, to come, uh, but you were able to participate. You were praying along with us, fasting and so on. Thank you so much for that. Now, one thing that, uh, one thing that we've been praying for this month is God's direction for our church. And so this week, uh, we're actually going to be sending out a survey for you uh, if you're part of Rocky Peak, if we have your email. And so we've been seeking the Lord. Now we want to hear from you uh, just on a variety of topics, how online experience has gone for you, what some of the challenges may have been. But especially as we think of kicking, uh, kind of kind of uh, restarting kind of weekend services in one way or another here on our campus, as we think of restarting uh, many of our different ministries, uh, we want to hear from you in terms of what you're comfortable with as we kind of put that in the mix as we're planning moving forward. And so uh, this week you'll be receiving that in your email. And what I would ask is that, um, that you each fill one of these out. Uh, for example, if you're in a family, don't just have like one person fill it out for the family. Because what we've experienced is that many different people, even in the same family, have a little different uh, perspective. And so we'd love to hear from each of you. So don't just have the wife fill it out for the husband or the husband for the wife or whatever. Just, you know, everyone fill it out. Uh, second thing, um, I just want to make a quick comment on my hair because I know that uh, a lot of you aren't even paying attention to anything I'm saying. But this is a new day. Uh, this is a COVID cut. It was great to have uh, kind of barbers open up this week. And so, um, so I'm looking forward to what God does new in all kinds of ways as we move forward into this uh, new season. So we're ready to jump in uh, right now. And so uh, if you're ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so thankful here as we're on the verge of a fall. And even though it continues to be a challenging season, it's an exciting season as we look forward to get back together in life groups, as we look forward to reopening our campus, reopening ministries, starting new ministries. God, we're just excited about the vision that you're releasing. And so God, we pray that as we come today, as we continue this series on spiritual warfare, I pray for great freedom as I teach. I pray that as a church we'd gather around your word, and like you said, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so God, we pray today for a mighty move of your spirit wherever we are, wherever we're watching from, that you would be with us, you'd be leading us and guiding us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today in a, in a darkened room. At least it's dark to him. You know, growing up, he never really thought a lot about this. Um, 
He knew people in his life who were blind. Um, he would often pass people in the city streets um, on his way to worship. He would see people who were blind, often begging for alms. And he'd grown up in a culture where uh, suffering and especially major disabilities were often seen as a result of the person's sin or the sin of a family member, maybe the parents. Uh, but honestly, because of that, he'd never really taken it seriously. But in the last few days, that's all changed because suddenly, without any warning, he's been struck with total blindness. And so he sits in a room not knowing whether the lights are on or off, whether it's day or night. But he knows that he's afraid. He's not sure where this is going to lead and what it means. He wonders what his future is going to look like. The last three days, he's, never, he's neither eaten or drank anything because he's so upset. Then, of course, at one level, the fear is, will my eyesight ever return? But at another and even a deeper level, the question is, why has this happened? Well, today we're continuing our series that we've been in now for the last, I think it's 10 or 11 weeks. It's called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare in Times of Challenge. And uh, if you've been here with us in this series, uh, you, you know this, that one of the key lessons that we've learned is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we, we cross this invisible spiritual line. We, we cross over from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And we, we enter into a new level of spiritual warfare. And so for the follower of Jesus, spiritual warfare is not just an occasional event. It's, it's more of an ongoing lifestyle. It goes to the heart and soul of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so today we're going to continue our series by going to the passage that has guided us all the way through this series. It's in the last chapter of Paul's letter to the book, uh, to the people, to the, the Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I want you to open up and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Then there in your note sheet is a section called Spiritual Warfare, uh, the Gospel of Peace. So, uh, every week we start here just to set the stage for this uh, connect, next stage of the journey. Uh, Paul starts in verse 10 as he's wrapping up this letter. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in our resurrected king who's conquered the powers of darkness and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, his methods. For our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, it's against the rulers, it's against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, when the battle is raging, that you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. And so this is the core challenge that we've seen each week, that as followers of Jesus, that we, we come to him, we enter this new level of spiritual warfare, that we face an enemy that is strong, that's smart and strategic, trying to take us out, and that if we want to win, we need to plug into the power of our resurrected king who has conquered the powers of sin and death and put on the full armor of God. 
And so from this point on, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, the apostle begins to identify six or seven, depending on how you count them, uh, pieces of armor, equipment, that we need to pick up, put on, put into practice if we are going to take our stand. And so he says in verse verse 14, so stand firm, uh, first first piece of equipment is with the belt of truth buckled about your waist. We spent several weeks on that. And then last week, Dre talked about the second piece of armor. He says, and, and with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And so today we come to our third piece of equipment uh, and it has to do with our footwear. Now this is interesting because we know from the the Roman army that they would wear a special kind of footwear, uh, kind of leather, uh, leather boots slash sandals when they would go into battle. And so these, uh, these, these shoes were made out of leather. Uh, they had about a three-quarter inch sole made of several layers of leather. But what was really spectacular, helpful about them was that they also had fitted on the bottom of the soles uh, these, what they, they describe them as um, kind of a hollow, hollow top hobnails. And so, in other words, they'd be embedded in the bottom of the shoe. The nails would go down, kind of a short nail. But this would allow the soldier in the midst of a, a bloody battlefield, it's uh, literally blood and guts everywhere, to find their footing and to help them to take their stand and not to slip. And so, so Paul seems to be building on this. He's not actually going to mention the, the, uh, the footwear, but he's going to talk about, um, he's, he's not going to give it a specific name, but he's going to talk about preparing our feet for battle. So let's see what he says. This third piece of equipment, he says in, uh, in verse 15, and with your feet fitted with the readiness, or in the Greek, Greek it could be translated with the preparation uh, that comes from the gospel of peace. Right. So he says, we're going to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, but on our feet to prepare us for battle, we're going to put the gospel of peace. Now, this is interesting. Often in this, uh, in, in this uh, analogies, metaphors of warfare and armor that Paul is describing, uh, and I pointed this out early in this series, that he often reaches back into the Old Testament, especially to the book of Isaiah. For example, there's a passage in Isaiah where Yahweh puts on the breastplate of righteousness and on the helmet of salvation. And in a similar way today, Paul seems to be reaching back into the prophet Isaiah and specifically chapter 52 to a famous prophecy. Um, and that's sort of the backdrop for this, uh, this metaphor. And so the, the prophecy is there on your note sheet. And uh, let, me, let me set it up. Uh, this is a prophecy from Isaiah, and as he looks into the future, he sees a distant day when because of Israel's sin and rebellion, they will be exiled, captured, destroyed, and exiled into Babylon like a thousand miles away. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, Isaiah promises that one day God will bring them back after they've sort of paid for their sins, so to speak. That he'll bring them back. And so in this prophecy, Isaiah is looking forward to the future and he sees uh, a messenger coming with good news for the city of Jerusalem. That the time of their um, exile is over and that God is coming to rescue them. So he says, uh, Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? Good 
news. Now, in the Greek version of the Old Testament that Paul would have been using, what we call the Septuagint, this is the same word as gospel. So, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news or the gospel and who proclaim what? Proclaim peace. In other words, the war is over, the exile is over, God is redeeming his people, bringing them home. Who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, to Jerusalem, your God reigns. That God is reigning, he's coming in power to bring you home. And so this seems to be the passage of scripture that Paul is reaching back and building his metaphor about spiritual warfare. Uh, notice some of the same language, the language of gospel, the language of peace, talking about the feet. And so what Paul is saying, he says that, hey, if you're going to win this spiritual battle, that you need to prepare your feet. You need to put on the battle shoes. But in a paradoxical way, these battle shoes are described as the gospel of peace. Now, this raises a couple of questions. First of all, um, what does Paul mean by the gospel of peace? And secondly, how does the gospel of peace prepare us to win the spiritual battle? And so that's, what, that's our topic on the table today. We want to unpack this topic of the, the gospel of peace and how it prepares us for spiritual warfare. Now, there in your note sheet, you'll see a section called the gospel of peace, the vertical and the horizontal. Now, you're going to have to stay on your toes today because we're going to do something a little bit differently. Um, Paul talks about the gospel of peace and explains what he means earlier in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. And what he's going to say is the gospel of peace has two dimensions. It has a vertical dimension, like why did Jesus come? He came to restore our peace with God, but it has a horizontal dimension that he came to restore our peace with one another. And originally, when I was putting this message together, we were going to cover both on this weekend. But on Friday night, I was out uh, hiking, and uh, all of a sudden, I just felt like the Lord began to speak to me, kind of out of the blue, really, and say, we need to take two weeks on this gospel of peace and spend a week on the vertical and a week on the horizontal because both are so important in understanding spiritual warfare, the way the enemy attacks, and what it takes to win. And so what we're gonna do today, it was sort of too late to, to redo the whole message note sheet, but it actually will work pretty well. Well, there's just going to be one blank that we won't fill in today. Uh, and along the way, I'm going to give you several other verses that are not on this note sheet, either printed out or references. But when that happens, we'll put them on the screen for you. And then I will call them out so you can jot them down the reference so you'll have them for your own personal study. So, uh, so let's, let's jump in. So Paul says, if we're going to win this battle, we have to shod our feet, prepare our feet with the gospel of peace. So what does he mean by the gospel of peace? Well, back in chapter two, he spent an entire chapter talking about the gospel of peace. And in the first half of the chapter, he talks about the gospel of peace, why Jesus came in terms of our vertical relationship with God. And so what I want to do is if you have your Bible, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and we're just going to go through the first 10 verses today. We'll cover the rest of the chapter next week. 
But in Ephesians chapter 2, and you may remember this, that early on in this series, um, I, I, uh, I did a message on, called the Big Three Enemies. And we, we went back to the opening verses of chapter two where Paul introduced the big three enemies of spiritual warfare, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's see what he says. So he says in chapter two in verse one, as for you, uh, those of you who are Christ followers in the city of Ephesus and in the area, he said, you know, before Jesus came into your life, you were dead in your sins. You're spiritually dead to God. Uh, and he said, in which you used to live when you followed, catch this, the ways of this what? The ways of the world. So there's the first of the big enemy. Uh, the, is the, world, the first of the big three. Uh, the ways of this world. He said, and secondly, and when you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Right? So the, the, lead, the leader or the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. We, we know him as Satan or the devil or the enemy. And he says, this is a, he is a spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. Talking about those who have not yet come to Christ. He said, now all of us, so it doesn't matter your background, whether you're, well, I like to describe it, we'll talk more about this later, but whether you're kind of a good kid, a wild child, or a religious person, he says, like the Apostle Paul was, he said, all of us, uh, we lived among them, this rebel race, uh, at one time, and we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh. So here's the third big enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we were following its desires and thoughts. He says, and like the rest of mankind, we were by nature born this way. We were deserving of wrath. So let's talk about this for just a second. So what the Bible says over and over again, we'll see it many times today, is that before we come to Jesus, whether we realize it or not, we are following the ways of this world that are being inspired by the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. We're following the thoughts and desires of our own fallen human nature and therefore we are under the wrath of God. We are under his judgment for our rebellion and sin. And so, and so this is where we are before Jesus steps into the picture. And so he goes on, he says, but, verse four, because of his great love for us. And so in spite of the fact that we are following the ways of the world, we're following the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, in spite of the fact that we're following our own fallen flesh, a human nature, that God came after us. And he said, because of his love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. To catch this, not only were we forgiven, not only were we adopted into his family, but we were connected organically with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like we share his spiritual DNA. And so we share his experience. We share his death to sin. We have new power over sin. We share in his new resurrection life. Um, and we also are gonna be raised, as we'll see in a second, uh, we're seated with him in the heavenlies with kind of authority and power over the dark side. And so he says that, verse five, 
uh, or verse, uh, yeah, verse five, we are made us alive with Christ. We are raised with him. Even when we were dead in our sin, or dead in our transgressions. And he says, it's by grace you're saved. He'll come back to that in a minute. And God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And catch this, the question is, now why? Why would God come after a rebel race? Why would he come after a man or woman who has been following the ways of the world under the leadership of Satan, whether they re realize it or not, following their own fallen flesh with this magnetic pull of dark side? Why would God come after us? And it's a beautiful thing. He says, in order, verse seven, that in the coming ages, eternity, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, why did he do it? Because he wanted to love us forever. And he says now, he comes back to this grace statement, for it is by grace you've been saved. Then of course, this goes to the heart of the gospel of peace. That this peace proposal that God makes has nothing to do with our performance. It doesn't matter whether you're a good kid, a wild child, a religious person, that all of us were following the ways of the world. All of us were under the leadership of Satan. All of us were under the wrath of God, following our own flesh. And so this relationship has nothing to do with our performance. It's completely a gift from God's love, his grace based on the sacrifice of Jesus for us. So he says in verse eight, it's by grace that you've been saved, rescued. It's through faith, so you're trusting in Jesus alone. Then this salvation, is, it's not from, your, from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works, you know, based on any performance. So that no one can boast like, hey, this is why God chose me, you know, because I, I worked hard or I really tried hard or I did my best or I was really seeking God. Or there's, there's no reason that any of us can boast. He says, for we are God's handiwork. In the Greek, his poema, where we get our poem, where his project. And we've been created in Christ Jesus. Catch that language. You know, the Bible says that at the end of time, there will be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. But what Paul is saying is for the follower of Jesus, that new creation that will happen then has already started at the deepest core of our being. As he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's, it's begun. The new creation has supernaturally begun. So he says we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, when I hear good works, I don't know, I always think of walking a little old lady across the street. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing to do, especially if she wants you to. Uh, but when Paul talks about good works, what he's, he's saying is that as a follower of Jesus, we've not only been chosen before time to be forgiven, to be adopted into his family, to receive the gift of his spirit, to be transformed by his power, to be like Jesus. But we've been chosen to join him in his epic vision of bringing all of heaven and earth healed and restored under the leadership. And that 
Each of us as followers of Jesus has been chosen to play a significant part of this. We talked about this back uh, pre-COVID. It's only the start of the year. It seems like 15 years ago. But remember we did the series on serving sacrificially. And we, we talked about this, how God is a believer. God has been shaping us our whole life. Remember the SHAPE acronym? That through our, he's, he's given us certain spiritual gifts. He's given us certain heart passions and natural abilities. He's given us a, u- a unique personality and certain life experiences. He's prepared us to make a difference, which gives our lives meaning and significance that you and I matter, that what we do matters, for, not just for now, but for all eternity. And he goes on and he says, to do good works, catch this, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We each have an important part to play. And so in this passage, Paul is talking about what God has done to restore our peace with him. This is the first half of the the gospel of peace, our vertical relationship. Now it's interesting. In this passage, uh, these first 10 verses, Paul doesn't use the word peace. He will use it seven verses later. We'll look at that later. Um, But it's obviously definitely what he's talking about. For example, in Romans chapter five, a passage we will look at in detail later, but there in your note sheet, you do have this verse. It says, therefore, as followers of Jesus, since we have been justified, which is Paul's word for made right with God. It's like, a, like you're coming before a judge and you're declared righteous. You're not guilty. You're, you're, uh, you're forgiven. He says, since we've been justified through faith, catch us, not through our performance, through our trust in Jesus. He said, we have peace with God. There it is, the gospel of peace, that, that we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that we were children of wrath under the judgment of God. But through Jesus, we have real peace with God. Not not just a feeling of peace, but actually a new relationship of peace where all crimes against the king have been wiped away with total amnesty, that we have peace with God. Now, One of, the, um, one of the questions that comes up then is that uh, how does this fit into spiritual warfare? As I've said, there's these two sides to this gospel of peace. There's a vertical side and a horizontal side. But, but how does this work? How does this gospel of peace, what part does it play in spiritual warfare? Why is it so important that we put on the gospel of peace if we're going to win? What I wanna do today in the time that we have together is I wanna highlight three important principles about God's vision for our life, the role that this gospel of peace plays in it, and then come back at the end and ask just one of the two questions there on your note sheet. We'll get to the second question next week. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the gospel of peace, three key principles. So let's jump in. We're gonna take... Uh, quite a bit of time on number one, and then two and three will go very quickly. So the first principle that jumps out in this 
uh, out of this passage is that God's vision is peace. Uh, if you were asked the question, why did Jesus come? He came to establish peace. And as we'll see next week, it's both, both vertically and horizontally. Um, but, but today the focus is on the vertical uh, peace. Now, like I pointed out, that Paul, in, the, in these first 10 verses in Ephesians 2, he doesn't use the word peace, so it's clearly what he's talking about. But later on, uh, in this same chapter, in verse 17, he does talk about peace. And once again, he reaches back into Isaiah, this time into Isaiah 57. He makes an allusion to Isaiah 57, 19. And he says, he'll say uh, in Ephesians 2, um, and uh, this one should be coming up on the screen, I believe. Let me see. Yep, there we go. Okay, you, you don't have this one on your note sheet. This is where we're starting to get a little wonky. All right, so uh, he, he says that he, talking about Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who are far away. And in context, as we'll see next week, he's talking about to the Gentiles who are far from God, that Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those, in context, who are near, referring to the Jews. He, he reaches back into Isaiah, and he says that, that when Jesus came, he came to announce peace. Just like in Isaiah 52, the messenger that comes to announce peace to Jerusalem. So Jesus has come as the ultimate messenger to announce peace to us as the human race. Now, like I said, Paul talks a lot more about this peace with God, this vertical peace, this gospel of peace uh, in other places. And one of the most important is in Romans chapter five. So we're gonna do a little Bible study together, all right? So I want you to take your Bibles and your apps and I want you to go to Romans chapter five. This will not come up on the screen. You'll need to uh, open your Bibles for this, all right? Now, before we look at Romans five, I need to take a fair amount of time and set it up, right? Because here's how the book of Romans works. In the opening chapters of the book of Romans, the first three chapters, Paul is explaining to us how the whole human race is guilty before God. We've all rebelled against God. Now, we do it in different ways. Like I said, some of us are good kids. Some of us are wild child. Some of us are religious kids, right? We, we approach it in different ways. But what Paul says in the opening three chapters is that we all have fallen short of the people we are created to be. And so when he gets to chapter three, he put, he, we come to this famous verse, and this one will come up on your screen now, uh, that uh, Paul says in chapter three, he's talked in chapter one about how the pagan Gentile world has rebelled against God. And then he, he talks in chapter two some about how the kind of the highbrow uh, pagan philosophers who pride themselves on their, their, their high ethics, how, how they have rebelled against God. And then he talks later on in chapter two about how the religious Jews, how Jews have rebelled against God. And he gets to chapter three, we come to this famous verse in chapter three in verse 23, where he says, for all, right? And, and what he means by that in context is the good kids, the wild kids, the religious kids. We've all, we've all sinned. We've all rebelled against our creator in our own unique way. And we have fallen short of the glory of God. 
Now, what does he mean? Well, you and I were created in the image of God and we were called to reflect God's glory as a race, but we don't reflect, we don't reflect his beauty, his generosity. We don't reflect his kindness, his love, his compassion, his righteousness, his justice. And we've fallen short as a race of the glory of God. And he says, uh, and, so, and so this is why, as Paul said, we are children of wrath. We're under the wrath of God. But the beautiful thing is, Paul says that, that God has taken the initiative to restore our peace, even though we're his enemies. Remember, even though we follow the ways of the world, even though we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, even though we follow our own flesh, even though we're children of wrath. Remember, he says, but God raised us. And so in chapter three of Romans, Paul has explained this earlier. In fact, the verses are gonna come up there on your screen. This is uh, from Romans 3, 22 to 25. He's gonna explain like how God provided a way for us to have peace, to be pronounced justified made righteous. And so he says, this righteousness, uh, this new way of relating to God is given through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ to all who believe, that all, read, wild child, good kids, religious kids. For, and the reason is for all have sinned, like we just read, and fall short of the glory of God. And we're all justified freely by his grace. Again, not our performance, but by his grace. Now he explains how God did this. And he says, this comes through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So he said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. His life for your life, his life for my life. He took the sentence of the wrath of God that I deserve, you deserve, and through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Right? So this is the good news, right? This is, this is the gospel of peace. And that's what Paul says next. As he goes on in Romans, you get to chapter five. Now we're ready for your Bibles. You've had them open for a while. Let's look at Romans chapter five. We won't do the whole, uh, we're just gonna pick and choose a few verses here. But in Romans chapter five, Paul says, therefore, you know, because of this atonement of Christ, we've been justified, made right by faith, by trusting in Jesus. And we have what? We have peace with God, the gospel of peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand I like to say, as followers of Jesus, we stand in a place called grace. It's our permanent residency. It's where we live. The name of the house that we live in is a place called grace. And he says, and so we boast, not in ourselves, but we boast now in hope of the glory of God that will be restored to us when Jesus comes back. And if you go to verse six, he says, you see, this is how it works. He said, at just the right time in human history, when we were still powerless, right? Read, when we were following the ways of the world, when we were following the ruler of the kingdom 
of the air. When we were following our flesh, when we were like the rest under the wrath of God, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Can you catch that? Christ died for the, the whom? The ungodly. This is the story of our race, right? It's who we are apart from him. And he says, now very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. It, it happens from time to time. You hear about a soldier jumping on grenades to save, save his buddies in war or someone giving up their life to save their friend in some way. It happens. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still, what? Sinners, right? Uh, later he'll define a sinner as an enemy. Christ died for us. And you know, for the apostle Paul, this was not theory. This was the story of his life and he never got over it. This amazing love of God who comes after his enemies because it was his story. You know, we started the day with a story of this man who, finds himself in a, in a room he can't tell if it's day or night because several days before he's lost his eyesight. He's so upset he doesn't know what it means for his future. He doesn't know if he'll ever regain his sight. He hasn't eaten or drank anything in three days. He's so upset. And deep down he's wondering what does it mean? Why has it happened in a culture that teaches that blindness and suffering happens because of sin and rebellion? And some of you may recognize this. This is a true story from the, the story of the, of the Apostle Paul. It's told in Acts chapter 9. Where, you know, Paul had grown up a religious Jew. He wasn't a wild child. He wasn't a good kid. He was a religious kid. And he took a lot of pride in his Jewish heritage and his accomplishments and his religious performance. And when the movement of Jesus started in Jerusalem, he saw it as a heretical movement, a threat to the true faith. And so he did everything he could to stop this heresy from spreading. Even going house to house, arresting believers in Jesus, beating them physically to cause them to blaspheme, to try to get them to blaspheme, throwing them in prison, voting for their execution. And in his zeal, his passion, uh, he even went as far as Damascus, about 180 miles away, looking like a spiritual bounty hunter, looking for Jesus' followers. But it was when he was approaching the gates of Damascus that the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory showed up. And the, the, the glory, the brightness, fried his retina. And he could not see. He was completely blind. And for the next three days, he was alone in a room. He wouldn't eat, he wouldn't drink. He was so upset. And the issue is not just his physical eyesight, but the issue was, what had he done? For, for a Jew, there was no greater sin than to reject the Messiah and to persecute and beat and execute followers of the Messiah. What does this mean for him? He realizes that he is the enemy of the Messiah. And yet in a move that he will never forget, three days in, 
Jesus sent a messenger named Ananias to pray for him that he would be healed. And Jesus told him he'd chosen him before time, that he loved him, and that though he was his enemy, he wanted him to now have peace with him. And he restored his relationship. And one of the reasons Paul said later in his life that Jesus chose him is that because if, if Jesus could love an enemy like Paul, that he could love anyone. He was a model of the grace of Jesus. And Paul never forgot that. In fact, in Galatians 2, he, he talks about being crucified with Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. He never got over this mercy of God. And so when Paul writes here about God reveals his love for us while we were sinners, while we were enemies, he died for us. It's very personal for Paul. It flows out of his life. And he goes on in verse nine, and he says, since we as followers of Jesus have now been justified by his blood, by his sacrifice. You see, you and I, as we have true moral guilt before the creator, the judge of the universe, it's not just guilt feelings, it's true guilt. We are spiritual criminals sentenced to death. And it's in that state that our creator reached out to announce peace, an offer of peace. And he says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In other words, the wrath that's coming at the end of time, the judgment. He said, for if while we were God's enemies, there it is, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, the most precious thing he had, his son. How much more now that we've been reconciled, we're part of his family, will be saved in the future when he returns by his resurrection life. And so what I want you to catch, we've spent a lot of time on this, but I want you to catch that this goes to the heart of the gospel of peace. This message that if you ask the question, why did Jesus come, came, he came to restore us to relationship uh, and to take care of our true moral guilt that hangs over every one of us as part of this fallen race, right? So God's vision is peace. Now the next two will go much quicker. The second, the second principle is that God's vision is radical. And what I mean by this is this gospel of peace is unlike any message in the history of the world. There is nothing like this message, the gospel of peace, a God who comes and takes, takes the sentence of our life so that we, our relationship is restored. There's nothing like this in any other religion or any other spiritual system. One of my favorite stories about C.S. Lewis is, uh, of course, C.S. Lewis was, uh, you know, famous Oxford, Cambridge, Don professor of medieval kind of Renaissance literature. And, uh, and he, early in his life, he was uh, agnostic. He was a very brilliant man. He was agnostic. And through a series of events, he eventually came to Christ and went on to write all these classic works from Chronicles of Narnia to Mere Christianity to Problem of Pain and so on. But one day, he was at a conference, and it was a conference of world religions. 
And as he walks through the room, there was a group of colleagues there who were discussing a question. They pulled them over and they said, hey, you're the Christian here. We've been discussing this. They were not Christians. He said, uh, how is Christianity different from other world religions? And Lewis said, that's easy. It's grace. No other religion has grace. He says in every other religious system, in every other religion, there's something you have to do. There's good works you need to perform. There's prayers you need to recite. There's ceremonies you need to experience. There's meditation you need to do. There's a series of um, uh, of kind of uh, going back in, in, in time, you know, to, to pay for your sins. There's always something that you do in order to establish your relationship with God or to have the ultimate experience or to be one with the universe. It's your meditation. It's, it's your reincarnations paying for the sins of your past. But only in the gospel of peace is there a message of grace, that our relationship with God is not based on our performance. It's based on his. It's a radical vision. And the third principle goes to the principle of spiritual warfare. If God's vision is peace, then Satan's vision is war. That he has come to steal, to kill, destroy. That from the very beginning, Jesus said in John chapter eight that he was a murderer from the beginning. And if God's vision is peace, to restore peace vertically with himself and then horizontally through Christ with one another, Satan's vision is always to, to bring chaos, to bring conflict, to bring hatred, to destroy relationship. And of course, this started in the garden with our core relationship with God. And so what this means is that Satan is always working to destroy the peace, whether it's vertical or horizontal. He's always working in our life to keep us from experiencing the peace that God wants. And so this happens in our life, initially in our vertical relationship with God, that, that the enemy will do everything you, uh, everything he can to keep you and I from crossing over this invisible line that separates the kingdom of darkness from the kingdom of light, bowing our knee to our true king, receiving his gift of amnesty for all crimes committed and being restored to our relationship. He'll do everything he can to keep a person from being restored. He'll, he'll do everything he can to keep a person in the kingdom of darkness and under the wrath of God to keep them being restored to their creator. But here's the thing. Even after we come to Christ, he will constantly do whatever he can to rob us of the gospel of peace and to replace it, catch this, with the gospel of performance. And he will constantly be tried to get us to base our relationship with God not on God's grace but on our performance. And if he can do that, it opens up tremendous opportunity for spiritual attack, insecurity, a lack of confidence, 
a breakdown in our relationship with God because deep down, we believe our relationship is based on our performance. And so this leads to a very important question. And there in your note sheet, you have a section called the Gospel of Peace. Two key questions. Like I said earlier, we're only gonna cover the first one today. We'll save the second one for next week. But the question is, are you experiencing peace with God? And I wanna ask this question on a couple different levels. First of all, I wanna talk with those of you who have not yet given your life to Christ. Maybe you've been watching this live stream for a while. Maybe you have someone who brought you to church. Maybe you were attending Rocky Peak before COVID hit. And and you sense God is drawing you. There's something here. But for whatever reason, you have not yet given your life to Christ. I want to be clear on what the Bible is teaching what we, what we read today is that whether you realize it or not, if you have not given your life to Christ, then, then you are following the ways of the world. Whether you realize it or not, you are under the leadership of the ruler of the air, that you're following the ways of your fallen human nature. And bottom line, you're under the wrath of God. And the enemy will do anything he can to keep you there. But the Holy Spirit will be calling to you, calling you to trust this God, to surrender your life, to step over that lie, and to receive this offer of peace. It's a real peace. It's not just a feeling of peace. It's actual peace where your sins are forgiven, your relationship is restored, You are adopted into God's family. You receive the gift of his spirit. You become part of his movement to bring all heaven and earth under his leadership. This is the offer that Jesus is making. This is what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do. And if you've never taken that step, if you've never crossed over from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, I want to give you a chance to do that today. In just a few minutes, I'm going to give you that option. But I want to ask this question at a second level for those of us who are followers of Jesus. I want to ask you, are you experiencing the peace of God in your life? Because like I I said before, this is one of Satan's oldest and greatest strategies. As you know, often we come to Jesus, and especially if you're from a wild child background, that that we understand we come to Jesus, that we're ungodly, that we, we don't have anything to offer. We understand what the Bible says about our rebellion. And we're just so grateful to receive this gift of forgiveness. It's not based on our performance, but based on the actual death of Jesus for you. But you know, sometimes after we've come to Christ for a while, or maybe we've grown up in a Christian home, and, and, and we, without realizing it, we begin to follow the gospel of performance instead of the gospel of peace. And the way this plays out is, hey, when we read our Bible, when we're doing the right thing, when we're not sinning, we we feel like God loves us, you know? 
We feel close to God, but when, but when we're not doing those things, we feel like, eh, maybe God doesn't love us. It's like, it's like God's love and our relationship with God goes up and down based on our performance. Now, let me be clear. I think there's a misunderstanding often in Christian circles. Sometimes we've been taught that, you know, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He only sees Christ. He only sees the righteousness of Christ. I don't think that's the best way to describe it. You know, when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, it's a very real relationship. And he is at times very pleased with the choices we are making. We're living, as Paul will write later in Ephesians, we're living a life worthy of the gospel, like living up to our high calling. There's other times we're living in sin or disobedience and we're grieving the Holy Spirit. If you look at Revelation chapter two and three, Jesus writes seven letters to the, the churches of Asia Minor. And in some of those churches, he has nothing but high praise. In other churches, severe criticism. So this relationship we enter into God uh, is a real relationship. It's, it's not uh, a fake relationship. And yet, in this real relationship, we understand that God's love and our relationship as a son or daughter, it doesn't go up and down based on our performance. That he's always for us. He may discipline us out of love as a father does, but he's always for us. So there will never be a time when he stops loving you. As a follower of Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He is for you and he is not against you. And when you realize that, that gives you tremendous traction in your battle against the enemy. When you put that gospel of peace on your feet, you know you are deeply loved. Regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of what you do in the future, you are deeply loved and he is for you and not against you. When you embrace that, you strap on the gospel of peace on your feet. That is a tremendous, gives you tremendous traction against the enemy who will come and say that God doesn't love you or he doesn't care or that sin was too big or he'll never forgive that or how can you ever be or you'll never arrive or you'll never succeed. When the enemy comes and attacks you with discouragement and depression and despair, your feet are firm because you know that you are deeply loved by your father because your relationship is not based on your performance. It's based on the gospel of peace. And let me tell you this. If you're a person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, but, but you have no problem living in sin, you have a lifestyle of sin, the New Testament says over and over again, do not be deceived. You'll have no inheritance in the kingdom because if you've truly entered into relationship and been justified, the Holy Spirit's come in your life and you will never be satisfied living a life of rebellion against your king. And so the question today is, are you experiencing God's peace? Do you have the gospel of peace strapped on your feet? Let's pray. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, wherever you are, you might be alone right now, sitting in a park. 
Uh, you might be at a home on your bed in a bedroom. You may have people around you. You may be alone. You may be at a kitchen table. But I want to ask you, if you've never given your life to Christ, I want you to understand where you're at spiritually. That there is a very real God. And he's a holy God and he's a righteous God. And you are far from him if you've not given your life to Christ. That right now you're under the wrath of God, not just for now, but for eternity. And this is why Jesus has come to proclaim peace. To tell you that he loves you, that he's come after you, and he's inviting you to step over that line and to bow your knee to him as your true king and to trust him and him alone for your salvation and to enter into this new relationship of true peace with God. Not just, not just experiential peace, but true peace. The charges are dropped. You're now deeply loved as a son or daughter of the king. And if you've never given your life to Christ, I want to give you that chance to do it right now. And I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. And if this expresses a desire of your heart, I encourage you to pray along with me. Maybe in your mind, in your heart. Maybe if you're alone, maybe out loud. Well, let's ask Jesus into your life. And give him your life. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your life your death, and your resurrection for me. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive my sin and rebellion for following the ways of this world, for following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, for following my own fallen human nature. And I ask you to forgive me and to send your Holy Spirit into my life to lead me and guide me and teach me how to follow you so that I can live with you, not just for now, but forever. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I would ask you if you just prayed that prayer. First of all, I would just welcome you to the kingdom. Making a decision to give your life to Jesus is the most important decision you could ever make. And I just want to welcome you to the family of God. And I'd love to share that decision with you as well. And so what I'd ask this week is if you just prayed that prayer with me and gave your life to Christ, that you'd send me an email this week. It's just simple. Michael at rockypeak.org. And just share that decision with me. And not only will I be able to encourage you personally, but I'll be able to send you a short letter. Just some, some early steps, some simple steps you can take to start your relationship with God in a healthy way. So, Father, we come now in the name of Jesus. We thank you for his life, his death, and resurrection. We thank you that you are a God who justifies the ungodly and only the ungodly. as that's all there is. We thank you that the gospel brings the worst news, that we're worse, we're worse off than we'd ever realized, but then brings the best news, that in spite of that, you love us and you restore us. So Lord, we thank you for your work in our life. And as we worship now, we pray that you minister to us through this powerful song. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.